Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm once more Gary Bain and joined again, although we are trying to change this, by Peter Hart. Hooray! Uh, And today, Pete, we're, we're doing something slightly different. Uh, we haven't done anything uh, on this subject for a while. It's going to be a baptism in fire and blood. Oh. The first, seventh Northumberland Fusiliers at Eeps 1915, so second Eeps 1915. Yeah, we mentioned it, I think, when we did the thing about 1915 uh, uh, Eeps soldiers. Uh, yeah. But a long time since we've done well, it. Was... So, you know, we've probably forgotten absolutely everything. So why have we done it? Well, mainly because we're lazy and uh, it, uh, it utilised a presentation you did at the Great War Group. Um, I think that's right. Yes. It just meant less work, really. Well, it's just one episode, isn't it, in a, in a, ter- a, ter- a territorial battalion. We're not saying they're anything special. First, seventh Northumberland Fusiliers, fine body of men. Uh, what, why, do, why do I like this so much? Well, as you've mentioned, there's a, a, a vehicle, as you put it, of a thousand personal stories of war, red in tooth and claw. Oh, purple prose. Yeah, I'm guilty of that this time. Uh, and it, and this talk is, uh, it's a show and tell, isn't it? It's, uh, it, it doesn't really explain what's going on that much, uh, but it gives an idea of what it was like to take part. Yeah. Which is what we like, isn't it? Yeah. So you better stop showing or as I'm going to tell. Oh, Gary. <laughs> now we meet them as they're training in England. And an amused Lance Corporal Jack Dorgan, who you interviewed, I believe. Yes, he was. Uh, he was from. Uh, he was from Northumberland, and uh, he was living in Nottingham at the time, which means Gary after the nineteen twenty six strike uh, that he walked to Nottingham. No, he's a bit of a scab. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but he was a lovely bloke, and I liked him a lot. Now. Young Lance Corporal Jack Dorgan watched one hapless young gentleman, so as he described both young, it. There's a lot of youngs There's going a lot on. of youngs here, yeah. Uh, try with a conspicuous absence of success to marcel, uh, master the precepts of simple foot drill. Or pronunciation. I never found simple foot drill simple. Now, one 
was a Captain William Watson Armstrong double barrel. Oh, see. Well, he was born on 10th of October 1892 and he was educated between 1906 and 1911 at Eton. Ooh. Following which, between 1911 and 1914, he was at Cambridge University. Now, apparently, then, as now, a privileged education was no protection from. Uh, Natural idiocy. Oh, did you have a privileged education? <laughs> no, I, I just, I work at this. This isn't natural. <laughs> and this is what Lance Corporal Jack Dorgan says. Generally, the officers came from the landed gentry. Lord Armstrong was the owner of a tremendous block of land up in Cheviots. And Honourable Watson Armstrong <laughs> was his son. We called him Watty Armstrong, incredibly witty soldiers of the time, weren't they? <laughs> he wasn't of the brightest by nature, but he was a kindly man. He was very well liked indeed. When we were being drilled and he had to pass on the order, he was always late in thinking it out. I used to stand behind him as a lance corporal and whisper, in a loud whisper, <laughs> left wheel. Then he would say, left wheel. <laughs> One day, when Captain Milburn was drilling the company, Watson Armstrong was slow in passing on order. Milburn must have heard me, heard me, overheard me whispering. And he says, in a very loud, firm voice, he says, Mr. Armstrong, you're a bloody fool. The whole company held their breath. And then Honourable Watson Armstrong stood up, saluted and said, yes, sir. That broke the ice. Every, I hope you'll impersonate that voice when you come to do him. Everybody burst out laughing. Even Captain Milburn had to smile. Some long words in that. Yes. Now, on the 20th of April 1915, they were part of the Northumberland Brigade. That's the 149th Brigade yeah. of the 50th Northumbrian Division. Are they from Northumbria? <laughs> and that was being sent uh, out to complete its training behind the line in France before being deployed on active service. The news of their departure was well received according to young Watty. Yes, he wrote a memoir called My First Week in France or something, uh, which uh, I've got to find it It's about that. <laughs> and uh, it's a nice little uh, thing. It's very short. He wasn't there long. Uh, and uh, I've only got a photocopy. It's super rare. Anyway, what does uh, Watty Say. This is Captain William Watson Armstrong to give him his uh, Sunday name. First, seventh Northumberland Fuse. They're all first, seventh Northumberland Fuse, aren't they? The battalion was in the very best of spirits. In fact, the men were quite boisterous in their delight in being at last off. They're a very good example of that unconquerable spirit which animates the Allied army and which is gradually overcoming the more material preparedness of the enemy. Ah, uh, ah. Uh I'm not sure it was. <laughs> I think they'd have been better off for having that spirit and being materially prepared. <laughs> That's a good point, yes. Now, after a full inspection, the battalion left for France under the command of Lieutenant Colonel G. Scott Jackson. Now, they entrained at Blythe Station and proceeded to Folkestone, where at 2300 they boarded the steamer Invicta. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you what the battalion medical officer uh, said he had a, a romantic view of that night voyage uh, and this his name was uh, Major William Mackay attached to the battalion but obviously the Royal Army Medical Corps and Scottish and uh, no no Gary <laughs> this is a serious thing hey <laughs> 
a night of black velvet darkness and silence. Not a light of any kind, not a sound save the throbbing of the engines and the beat of the screws. Not a whisker among the closely packed ranks of the men on board the channel steamer which conveyed us across. The sea was brilliantly phosphorescent and every wave top was a gleam of sparkling light. The spray the vessel threw up was like diamonds sparkling in electric light. Ahead there gleamed a, a glistening phosphorescent surge of the inky black sea and a long luminous lane like the Milky Way stretched before us. This was the wake of the destroyer ahead, mapping out as, as it were a luminous road for us to travel along. And so the seventh came to France. Wow, it's like being there. Now, on arrival at Boulogne, they then marched up the steep hill. Well, isn't that a film about a half-witted gardener? Are you saying you're like a half-witted gardener? <laughs> I wouldn't call myself half-witted. No. Or a gardener. All right. Now, having been rudely interrupted, when they got to Boulogne, they marched up the steep hill to St. Martin's camp. And this is what Captain William Watson Watty Armstrong says. It was a beautiful fine night, which made the march through the empty streets of the French port rather impressive. There was a silent hush over the whole place, except for the tramp, tramp of hobnailed boots over the cobbled streets. We passed a few French sentinels, enshrouded in their blue capes. They were to us the first impression of the military power of France. Now, they, they, they only stayed there overnight, and, and uh, they, they leave the camp next day, obviously, uh, where they had a, a, an encounter that would prove to be somewhat prophetic. And you're going to tell us what Captain Hugh Liddell, or Liddell, never sure about that, first 7th Northumberland Fusiliers said. A party of returned wounded marched out on their way back to their units. In our innocent enthusiasm, we rushed out, lined the road, and cheered them as they passed. None of them took the slightest notice, except one man marching in the rear, who turned round and shouted back, You blighters will be cheering out the other side of your mouths very soon. Now, they finally left the camp at uh, 19.30 on 21st of April. Uh, and and travelling on the West Front uh, was a painful... It's a bit like going on the railways now. Um, uh, it, it, everything seemed to be delayed and it took hours more than you'd ever expected it possibly could. This is no one's fault. This is just a, 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 you've got armies travelling. It's the on. logistics yeah, of it. logistics. And I'm going to tell you what uh, Lieutenant Francis Cohen said. We marched about five miles over bad roads to a small station, Pont de Brique. Here we entrained, leaving about 10.30pm, the men in open tru trucks, 45 to a truck, and officers in a small third-class carriages. Six hours at a train with no lights and very cold. No sleep for anyone. Now, they detrained at Cassell and then marched about 10 miles to the village of uh, Vinazeli. Were they all chirpy and bright? No, the men were exhausted, with several dropping out during the last two or three miles. And this was where they were intended to spend the next month on divisional training before being gradually introduced to the fray. Battalions being attached to experienced units to learn the sort of ins and outs of the front. Now, this goes wrong, doesn't it? Uh, because what happens on the 22nd of April? Well, the Germans launched their infamous gas attack, which uh, began the Second Battle of Ypres. They broke through and were only stopped after desperate fighting. 
Suddenly, it was all hands to the pump, no matter how inexperienced. And on the 23rd of April, the entire battalion was roused. <laughs> the officers had no idea what was happening. And once more, you're going to tell us what Major William Mackay of the Royal Army Medical Corps says. Next morning at 7.30am came word that the battalion was to get ready at once as a whole brigade was to move off. Why or where, we knew not, but evidently there was something urgent in the air. And they, they, they had a long march in front of them. Uh, what does Watty say? Sorry, <laughs> Sir Captain William Watson Armstrong. I do apologise for such familiarity. On a march through the countryside, where there was not so much to interest us, we played the mouth organ to cheer one another on, and I often took a turn myself, sometimes resting in favour of Bob Young, who was soon to meet his end in the forthcoming battle. We're going to hear a lot more about Bob Young, so bear that name in mind. So they march through Poppering, and they they arrive at Vlamertinge uh, Woods. Um, where's that, Gary? Four miles west of Eeps. So the safe side of Eeps. <laughs> well, yeah, it's still within artillery range. Yeah, I expect so. And who did they encounter on the way? Well, a stream of refugees. And this is what Lance Corporal Jack Dorgan said. They were mainly old men, women and children. Never a sound, just mooching along without a word. Their spirits seemed to be broken. They had all kinds of wheelbarrows, some with two wheels, some with one. Some of the wheels weren't even wrapped. <laughs> Just pieces of wood nailed together to make it as round as possible. Very rudimentary. They carried mostly bedding and personal things. Children as well were carrying as much as they could. I don't know how they managed struggling along past us. Heads down, not a word to each other and not a word to us. They would be speaking a different language anyway. Now the road was also full of military traffic, as Major William Mackay relates. As we emerged on a wider, more important road, we were passed by an an apparently endless stream of motor supply wagons. Miles of them, it seemed, all heavily laden, all moving forward. Now, too, we met a stream coming the other way, an unbroken stream of ambulance wagons, each with its freight of poisoned, wounded and bloodstained men, the first really striking sign of the grim and terrible reality of war. No pomp and circumstance here, no sign of glorious war, but abundant and all-sufficing evidence of organised and scientific butchery. Mm. Now, they stayed overnight in the Vlamatine woods, they could hear the thunderous roar of the guns echoing all around, and Major William Mackay goes on. Throughout the whole night, firing was continuous, leaping every now and then into fierce intensity. Then no longer could you detect the individual reports of the guns, but the sound became continuous, an extraordinary rapid drumming, like a continuous roll on a gigantic kettle drum, punctuated every little while by a deeper boom, the sound of great howitzers or the crash of exploding giant um, shells and this is the drum fire they often talk about and uh, wow next day 24th of April 1915 they were on the march again starting forward at 1700 hours now they passed through Eeps and they're heading towards the villages of Pochi uh, which is two miles to the east of, uh, of uh, Eeps uh, here they're going to they're intended to form the core reserve and this is what Captain Hugh Liddell says I'm going for Liddell this time Coming round a corner, we caught our first sight of what war means. There was a GS wagon, that's a general service wagon, tipped on its side on the footpath. The two horses and the driver were lying dead in the road. I do not think the dead man worried me much, but the two dead horses nearly made me sick. It seemed so horribly cruel and senseless. 
A little further on was a child's toy perambulator, with the doll lying in the road at this time. And next, an old grey-bearded man. I cannot describe it. It is a city of the dead, not a whole house standing, the cathedral in flames, the streets strewn with dead men, horses, upturned carts, bicycles, bricks and slates, and the atmosphere frightful. The usual ten minutes halt occurred at this spot, in accordance with the drill book, and it was our luck to be exactly in the middle of the marketplace, which the Bosch were doing their best to pulverise. The first shell, shrapnel I think, as the bullets knocked sparks out of the cobblestones, laid out six men just in front of me. I remember holding the electric torch while Mackay pulled a bullet out of a man's leg. Mackay, being a doctor, seemed to be enjoying himself. Now, we've stayed there. I mean, we've all, but I think most of the listeners here will have been in the uh, the market square at, uh, at Eeps. We stayed at, the, was it the two Tommies, the Tommies, or what was it? What was that place where we stayed? Well, anyway, the old Tom. The old Tom, yeah. And uh, I can, we can picture where this happened. This is what Mackay said. He may have seemed to be enjoying himself, but it, it was it was a terrible day for uh, for William Mackay. He says this: a sudden rushing sound, increasing to a shriek in the air overhead, a dazzling flash, a splitting crash, a curious metallic tinkling and sparkling of little blue sulfurous flames all over the square, a sudden outcry of stricken men, a shout for doctor and stretcher bearers, again and again and again a regular fusillade, the seventh has received its baptism of fire, up comes the stretcher bearers at a run, they remain behind to tend and arrange as best they can for the removal of the wounded, but their column moves inexorably on through the streets with their sickening odour of burning and of death. It is an epitome of war. The noise, the tumult, the fierce haste, the cruelty, the crashing brutality, and after the quietness, the patient suffering, the wounded, maimed and shattered men, the silence of those who never return. So he wasn't enjoying himself, whatever he may have appeared to be. I presume that was just professional getting on with his job. They ended their march in the insalubrious surroundings of a muddy field. And this is what Captain Hugh Little, as I'm going for, says. We lay down for the present in the potatoes in lines of platoons, i.e. we were spread out as far as possible with an interval of about two paces between each man. Our guns were 200 or 300 yards behind us, six 18-pounders, perhaps, and they started shelling the country in front of us. The Bosch, of course, replied by shelling us, and this went on till 4.30am. It was rather a trial waiting for the next one, plopping on top of you. For the first hour, I was in a mortal funk, and then I began to get more or less used to it, and brave enough to light a cigarette. Finally, I fell asleep to be wakened every now and then by a shower of mud and potatoes. Now, the next day is 25th of April, and we want to make a, a point here, because... Um uh, the, the, the 50th Division, the Northumber, Northumbrian Division, was not ready for action in any way. Uh, who should have been there and where were they? Uh, I think you're referring to the fact that the 29th Division were at Gallipoli. Uh, and they should have been on the Western Front. Uh, but they were busy storming the beaches of Hellas with a remarkable lack of success. Yeah, but they should have been. I mean, if they hadn't been diverted and Kitchener had wavered, at, but... The, 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 the needs must or whatever. But the fact was that, that the absence of the 29th Division 
Would, would it have made a difference to the war? No. Uh, would it perhaps have saved the uh, 50th Northumberlands from early exposure to death and destruction? Yeah. Would they have got it anyway? Yeah. So we're not making too big a point of it, are we? But this is a point we want to make. Anyway, so what does Hugh Liddell go on to say? This is next day, 25th of dawn. What happens? The colonel then sent for company commanders and told us we had to make an attack at 4.30am on the village of Fortune, about three miles northeast of this place. You should have seen our faces. We'd not the, the faintest notion before this that we were going to attack. We were tired out, very hungry indeed, and pretty jumpy besides. We had no idea where we were, who was on our right and left, and we'd never seen the country in daylight. All we were possessed of in the way of information was a very inferior small-scale map. Well, we just had to make the best of a bad job. And that's what I meant about people not knowing what was happening. But also, that is the prevailing attitude amongst the whole of the battalion, as far as I can see. They didn't know what they were doing, but they're going to have a go at it, whatever it is. <laughs> What's happening? Who am I? Where am I? What's going on? Oh, well, try it. We'll do our best. What were they doing, Gary? They, they were supporting an attack by the 10th Brigade, that's 4th Division, uh, which was being made on St. Julian and the Kitchener Wood. And uh, Number 1 and number 4 companies of the 1st, 7th, took the lead number three and number four companies guess where they were gary uh, supporting yeah that's right now what does uh, what does captain william watson armstrong say dawn was now breaking and none of us had the least idea what we were going to do i only just remembered how, just he remembered how he speaks yes <laughs> it was cold muddy and sopping wet i never felt more miserable in my, all my life however there was nothing we could do but try and make the best of it till the sun should come out and dry us we commenced our advance in artillery formation, but soon extended into open order. We advanced and retired, and then advanced again, during which time several casualties occurred. The bursting of the shells all round one was rather trying, and a very strange experience to the uninitiated. Now, it's certainly a bit of a shock for Hugh Liddell, Captain Hugh Liddell, and you, you're all, you seem to be doing everything, Gary. Do you have to do everything? I have to do everything. What's this is say? Captain Hugh Liddell. A German plane came over close down and he must have spotted us because the Bosch guns started shelling. The first one pitched about 20 yards to the rear and the next about the same distance ahead. I had just said to some of the men near to me that we would wait for another and if any came nearer we would shift. Well, the next one did it for me as it pitched about one yard in front of my nose which was in the ground and lifted me into the air. I can remember seeing a man's face with a terrified expression on it through the black smoke and I do not remember anything at all after that till I found myself lying in a wet ditch alongside a hedge. Whether I'd been there five minutes or an hour, I do not know. Now they push on some 500 yards past, uh, well, some Canadians are holding a trench uh, before the fire just gets too heavy uh, and they take up defensive positions. They still didn't really know what, <laughs> where they were or what they were doing. Uh, what did they know, Gary? Well, they knew that it was dangerous, and this is what Captain William Watson Armstrong says. We took up a defensive line on the hillside. My platoon was in a ditch and a hedge in front of it, and underwent a terrible shelling in the afternoon, which slackened off towards the evening. Shells burst continue, continually all along the long, thin line of our battalion, some bursting just short, some just beyond, and others crashing through and making cruel gaps among our men. I had many almost miraculous escapes. A bullet passed through my cap, 
and I was all but buried by a shell, which tore away half a little shelter I'd crawled into. Now, the attack by 10th Brigade, their, their attacks are failure. The 10th Brigade attack of 4th Division, that's also a failure. Although it is credited with what? It, uh, what? What do they credit it with? Well, the stemming of the German advance beyond St. Julian. Right. Now, at nine o'clock, they realised that both the flanks were exposed. So they withdrew to take up positions to the right of the Canadians. Then eventually, about 2,300 that day, they're relieved by other troops and the brigade falls back all the way to where they'd started, which is by this time near near Wiltshire. I can't pronounce that. And this is Captain William Watson Armstrong once more. We lay down in the field and slept in spite of the killed, for we were worn out. We had been marching and fighting for about 36 hours on end, and the only food we had was the iron ration we carried with us and the water we got at the farmhouse. Well, if only they knew what was still to come. And uh, with that, we'll have a short break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Northumbrians were amateurs learning the ugly truths of war the hardest way of all. This had been but an aperitif before the main course that was served up to them on the 26th of April. Now, the Northumbrian Brigade was to act as a reserve to the 1st Canadian Division, who issued orders at 13.30 for a general attack on St. Julian in conjunction with the Lahore Division and a battalion of 10th Brigade. Uh, the attack was ambitiously timed to commence at 1405. <laughs> uh, the orders arrived late for the 1st 7th Northumberland Fusiliers. And once more, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant Francis Cohen says. 
Early in the morning, we got what breakfast we could, and there was any amount of bully beef and biscuit tins lying about. In the field where we were lying, there were a number of shell holes of various sizes, so we set to work to make these deeper and safer, also more comfortable. At about 2.15, the colonel hurriedly cut... Hang on, what time did you say the attack was starting? 14.05, 2.05. Hmm. Uh, The the colonel hurriedly called the company commanders, and in two minutes they came rushing back with the news that we were to attack the village of St. Julian immediately. So ten minutes after they were meant to start is when they first get news of it. This is... Uh, bad staff off, uh, well, bad work, bad staff. But now yeah. we've been a bit remiss here. We should say St. Julian is northeast of Eeps. It's, it's two or three miles to yes, the north. Yes, it's a famous story of how me and, uh, <laughs> Nigel Steele were driving there one day and we'd written a book on Passchendaele, as people might know, the sacrificial ground. And, uh, we were on our way there. We were thinking we were waiting for Pilkham Ridge and then we got to St. Julian and realized we'd missed. We'd missed Pilgrimage. It is easy to miss, to be fair. <laughs> yes. Now, chivied to move off as quickly as possible by Brigadier General James Riddle, uh, or Riddell, and his staff, they were on the move by 14.30. That's pretty bloody quick, then. That's 15 minutes. Now, no regimental officer had had any time to wrecky the ground, and they had no connection with the Royal Artillery for support fire. And once more, this is what uh, Lieutenant Francis Cohen says. We had not the sl- the vaguest idea as to where our own front line was, or indeed if there was one at all, or where the Germans were. But as we were ordered to get on, on we got. I like that. I, I, that that's good. Now, where are they? The, the, the 4th Northumberland Fusiliers, this is the rest of the brigade, were on the uh, right uh, of the 1st 7th. The uh, the 6th Northumberland Fusiliers are on the left, and uh, the the uh, 7th are actually, they're actually going to follow up the 4th Northumberland Fusers. So I've got that wrong. The 4th are on the right, the 6th are on the left, and the 7th are coming up behind them. And they're advancing across the Wilt G. Fortuyn Road. The what uh, road? Uh, that one. And they t- they top a slight rise <laughs> and immediately came in for a hot reception, don't they? And once more, you are, you're being busy now. You are oh, going to tell us what Lieutenant le- Francis <laughs> Cohen says. There seemed to be thousands of German guns trained on us, while none of ours were speaking at all. A wide panoramic stretch of the country was in view, with what was apparently the village of St. Julian in the middle distance. So that that thing was, uh, again, the slight rise is Pilgrim Ridge. Um, And the vast Hulthurst forest further behind. We had to go downhill into a slight valley, and then the ground began to rise again. Our casualties from the start were very severe, but presently we came under terrible machine gun fire. And worse still, we had to cross the Bardoir entanglements, protecting one of our own rearward reliance of trenches. As this was not cut and was accurately ranged upon by the Bosch, our casualties here were ghastly. The barbed wire was the British wire protecting the GHQ line. There were not many gaps, and in the absence of a proper reconnaissance, there was considerable difficulty in locating them. Yeah, I did a couple of interviews with the different battalions in Northumberland for a few years, and they all talk about this. It was a real, real log jam. So, yeah. So having got at last got through the wire, they, they continue to advance on St. Julian. Now, wh- where are they in relation to... The, well, the first seventh have, have come into line, haven't they? Yeah, they're, they're, they're now on the right alongside the, uh, the fourth Northumberland Fusiliers. And the whole lot of them come under murderous machine gun and rifle fire laced with lovely heavy shelling. Ooh, lovely. Now, this is one of my 
biggest memories of being an oral historian for 40 years is the interview I did with Jack Dorgan. And it's an absolutely heart-rending account of what happened to him that day. There's no humour in any of this. It's awful. He says this. As, as we were going forward, men were being shot down, wounded and killed. Sergeant Pick lay in the middle of a field shouting for help, swearing and tearing, wanting help. You could see chaps had gone forward to help him because there they were lying dead in the field alongside. Yet he still kept shouting for somebody to help him. We just had to pass on. Our objective was St. Julian. The stretcher bearers were running around, carrying our wounded away, leaving the dead for later. A batch of us lay behind a hedge, resting. We never saw an enemy, never saw anybody to shoot at. A shell dropped right in among us. When I pulled myself together, I found myself lying in a shell hole. There was one other soldier who, like me, was unhurt. But two more were heavily wounded, so we shouted for stretcher bearers. The other chap says to me, We're not all here, Jack. So I climbed out of the shell hole, and there was two of our comrades lying just a few yards from the shell hole. They'd been blown out by the same shell. So I climbed out of the shell hole and found two more of our comrades lying just a few yards away. They had their legs blown off. All I could see was their thigh bones. I will always remember their white thigh bones. The rest of their legs were gone. Private Jackie Oliver was one of them. He never recovered consciousness. I shouted back to the fellows behind me. Behind me, Tell Reedy Oliver his brother's been wounded. So Reedy came along and stood looking at his brother, lying there, no legs, and and he died a few minutes later. But the other, Private Bob Young, remember the mouth organ player, Gary, was conscious right to the last. I lay alongside of him and said, can, you, can I do anything for you, Bob? He said, straighten my legs, Jack. But he had no legs. I touched the bones and that satisfied him. Then he said, get my wife's photograph out of my breast pocket. I took the photograph out and put it in his hands. He lay there. He couldn't move, couldn't lift a hand, couldn't lift a finger. But he held his wife's photograph on his chest. And that's how Bob Young died. Today, on the Men in Gate Memorial, their names are recorded as having no known graves. I've seen those names many, many times since the war. Jackie Oliver and Bob Young's names are there. When I've stood and looked at them, I've, all, I've sometimes thought, my name could have been there as well. I think, how lucky I am to be able to be there 70 years after. And I've been and stood there and looked at those names like Jack Dawkins did. And he carried on going to the Western Front to almost the day he died. He, and he always went back and looked at those his friends. But there's another version, isn't there? Yeah, it, as you've mentioned, it, it, it was written up by Captain Watson Armstrong in his book, My First Week in Flanders. And he paints a very different and somewhat nobler picture. And this is Captain William Watson Armstrong. One shell, which burst a yard or two off me, killed two of my men and injured another. The two men displayed great heroism in their dying agony. One of them, Bob Young, as he was carried away, minus his legs, called upon an officer who was almost overcome by the sight to be a man. And I was further told that he died kissing his wife's photograph with the word Tipperary on his lips. Such were the men the Germans failed to break, men with an unconquerable spirit which no human horror could overcome. Now, Jack Dogan read that book. <laughs> and you know what old soldiers are like. I mean, he obviously was fond of uh, Watty, as he called him, but he's not fond of him about this. And, and notice he gets it slightly wrong because he doesn't quite quote him accurately, does he? But the sense is there. 
Captain Watson Armstrong writes about that incident where Bob Young and Jackie Oliver were killed. He writes in his book, Bob Young, I understand, was singing Tipperary when he died, which of course was nonsense. I was there when Bob Young died. He died with his wife's photograph in his hand. He had no thoughts of singing Tipperary. His voice was getting fainter and fainter all the time until he pegged out. What the captain was trying to imply was that the morale of the Northumberlands was so high, but it didn't happen that way. And uh, I think that's great. Uh, It just shows... Well, he's he's clearly annoyed by it, but there's less of an argument as to Watson Armstrong's views on the course of the battle that terrible day. So what does he say there? We found that the only way to advance was for a few men under an officer or an NCO to make a short rush forward and then to lie down flat and regain their breath. It was a case of every man using his own intelligence with courage. We made a good deal of progress and took up a strong line with a hedge in front of it which afforded some shelter. In front of this position was a large open field, and at the other end of it, a few hundred yards distant, lay the village of St. Julien and the Germans. To cross this field without adequate artillery support was impossible, and yet we'd been ordered to advance. Our present position by the farm, however, was being shelled to such an extent that as far as our safety went, it did not much matter where we were. We began our last advance and made two or three short rushes. I'd just finished the last of these and was going to lie down when I received a staggering blow on the back and fell forward. I suffered an agonising pain and soon felt another blow on the back, also extremely violent. I began to find difficulty in breathing and wondered if I would ever leave this spot. Now, uh, the book, you asked what the book's about, and the reason it's called... My first week of this is only week in uh, in Flanders because he was terribly wounded. Um, uh, he does survive though, and it's nice to record. Uh, he recovers as best you can from such serious wounds, and he only actually dies on the sixth of July, nineteen seventy-two, at the fine old age of seventy-nine. That's not bad. Now behind him, the attack spluttered out in almost farcical circumstances, and once more, you're going to relate what Lieutenant Francis Cohen says. Presently, we thought we saw the German trenches with their garrison ready. It seemed to surrender, as they appeared to be holding up their hands. By this time, of course, we had deployed as yesterday, but our lines were very thin now. We made ready to charge, but after all, it transpired that this was our front line, held by the 2nd Seaforth Highlanders of the 4th Division, and they were cheering us on. They expressed surprise at the way we'd faced the music, and... uh, and and uh, I've got a account by another veteran I interviewed called George Harbottle, who's in a different battalion. Same story, though. And he gets there and they say, what the bloody hell are you doing? <laughs> Which sounds to me. Because <laughs> they couldn't understand what they were doing, advancing in the open. They could do it at night. Now, this was uh, the, the most dreadful of anticlimaxes. All the casualties, all the dreadful suffering had been incurred in advancing behind the British lines. In a sense... They were going nowhere. And this reminds me of what happened to the Newfoundlands at, um, at the Somme. On the first day of the Somme, yeah. Uh, a, f- a few isolated parties of the six Northumberland fuses managed to push on another 250 yards. Can they hold the ground? No, because they're totally isolated and they have to fall back. And once more, this is what Lieutenant Francis Cohen says. Further than this line of trenches situated just on our side of the village, it was impossible to get, as the air was simply thick with bullets. 
We all thought we should be shelled to bits here, but still the shells passed over our heads and we saw that they found a far more favourable target behind us. The stretcher bearer parties were busy trying to get the wounded back and the Bosch were doing their utmost with too much success to blow them to bits. That's uh, unfortunate. Uh, perhaps the Germans didn't know what was happening. They can't always see what's happening. We stuck that there till dusk. Or stuck here till there, but yeah. And it was now we learned of the death of our brigadier, Colonel Coles, 5th Northumberland Fusiliers, assumed command of the brigade. So that was uh, that was Riddell. Riddell. Yeah. Uh, it was decided to consolidate the line we were in. Part of our trench fell in, partially burying Colonel Jackson. And we had a bit of a job to get him out without ourselves being sniped. For the Germans were within 200 yards of us. Now, uh, this is dreadful. Uh, they've got nowhere. They've been destroyed. So what happens next? Well, the Northumberland Brigade was relieved and withdrawn from the line early on the 27th of April, once more back to Veltia. Uh, their medical officer, that's uh, William Mackay, recalled a curious incident. And this is Major William Mackay of the Royal Army Medical Corps. Pitch darkness in the salient, a merciful darkness that hid for a time the hideous sights of the last few days. I was lying in a little Barrow, rudely scratched out with an entrenching tool, which someone had excavated during the fighting as a shelter from grazing fire. It's just grazing the grass level. Uh, there being a slightly ra- rising slope, I dug the head somewhat deeper and then crept into it and lay there, fortunately wide awake. A gentle whispering of voices, very dimly seen shadows of men, vague blurs in the darkness. Then suddenly a great spadeful of earth was thrown on top of me, whereupon I sat up and made remarks, fluent, terse and forcible, but I fear hardly polite and certainly not of of a type usual in drawing rooms. Well, they are in our drawing rooms, aren't they? (laughs) To me, there answered from the darkness an unmistakable cockney voice. Go on, Gary, you do this next bit. Lord lammy, sir. We thought you was a dead man. We was going to bury you. No doubt my burrow looked like a shallow grave, and I was lying as still as men, as any of the quiet men, of the many quiet dead lying around. But I have sometimes wondered what would have been my fate had I been as dead asleep as most of our weary men were. He's thinking yeah. he might have been buried yeah, alive. Yeah, he might have been buried alive. Now, the Northumberland Brigade attacks would have the dubious distinction of being the first made by a whole territorial brigade in the Great War. Now, were they ready for it? <laughs> you can't pretend that the Royal Territorials uh, were anything other than unready. They suffered some 1,954 casualties, nearly two-thirds of the brigade's strength, and all apparently for nothing, including the Brigadier General. I want to make that point, you know, safe back in the chateaus. Yeah. Absolutely. And the survivors are recalled back to the very field from which they'd started. And people like Jack Dorgan wax eloquent about this. Uh, but there'd be many more battles for the 7th Northumberland Fusiliers, wouldn't there? Yeah, you could argue too many. But rarely was there such painful losses that would be suffered in such a lost cause. But uh, there were others who took a more rosy view of the events. And uh, once more, I'm going to be Captain William Watson Armstrong. The 7th Northumberland Fusiliers suffered very heavily. We lost a great number of our men, our casualties for this afternoon's work being about 470 killed and wounded. This, added to our former casualties, brought our total number of dead and wounded for the two and a half days up to about 620. On all this, we can only comment that it was the fortune of war. 
And what does it matter who dies if only England lives? What a complete arse. I'm afraid so. Uh, what indeed is what I would say. What indeed. <laughs> but I mean, this is the sort of, uh, and this is what annoyed Jack Dorgan. He's trying to put a spin on this that, uh, you know, it was some noble sacrifice, but it was a terrible, terrible disaster. Do we blame anybody? I'm not sure I do blame anybody, uh, except possibly the Churchill. Germans. The Germans. Firstly, that's absolutely right. They are the ones. But also the people who, did, who sent uh, the 29th Division to Gallipoli bear some responsibility. But I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened anyway. But it, it was a terrible, terrible thing that happened to the 7th and the other battalions of that brigade. Let's, and also, let's not forget the Canadians fighting bravely at, at Second Eves. Everybody, there's lots of, this is just one part of a huge story, isn't it, Gary? It is, Pete. Now, whilst it's it's been great to get back to to the Western Front, albeit from my uh, uh, living room, uh, it would be great to visit again. Um, I would like to remind the the listeners that we have our joint book is currently available and reduced in price at the moment on on Amazon. Is it about marijuana? It's uh, laugh or cry. Not about marijuana. No, uh, which is the. Uh, the the uh, British Army on the Western Front, 1914-1918. It's the best way people can support the podcast. Um, And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, we would ask that you you show your support by by buying the book. It it really will help. It does. We'll be able to retire to the Algarve. Or or Clacton. Clacton. Yeah. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?